0: And you can become part of our Discord community. Learn more about the show and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com.
1: So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show.
0: Who is it? Larry the (laughs) Cable Guy? Get her (laughs) done. Is it Larry the Cable
1: Guy who says that? Yeah, I believe it is. I and
0: they, I believe, they are immortal. Get actually. er done. I think, I think it's get origin. To be accurate, it's get.
1: It is in the. It is get. It's hyphenated. Uh, get hyphen er hyphen done. It's a statement of boisterous completion, or encouraging another person to get something done, completed, or finished. It can be used at random times, such as traffic jams, sports events, and oh yes. Your favorite, I'm sure, NASCAR. Its origins are thought by some to be sexual, which it does work well in that context, but not limited to that. In the last two years, Get Her Done has debuted in many social and ethnic settings, thus expanding its borders beyond redneckdom to actual cultural diversity.
0: I don't think Larry the Cable Guy wrote that definition. No, no, (laughs) he
1: he didn't. Uh, Actually, the second definition is uh, Get Her Done. The expression that Larry the Cable Guy uses means to uh, to, uh, engage in uh, coitus, to get drunk, to get ripped, etc. It basically works for anything of that sort. Get her done. Yep. (laughs) Get her done. And that's uh, welcome to the next reel. (laughs) I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Hello, Andrew. Chortling away, chortling away. Uh, I uh, can I tell you something. So you know, I meet with my uh, trainer. Mm. I have a trainer, Jamie. Shout out to Jamie. I don't. Uh, it's it's tough having this kind of relationship with Jamie because he uh, I he sees me at my worst, and when I'm at my worst, I don't like him very much. But what? I have a feeling he's a he's a fairly uh, congenial guy. He's a nice guy, and he actually um, you know was uh, with him uh, uh, getting getting trained. Uh, uh earlier this week and he said he'd actually uh had listened to the show wow, uh, which is a little bit strange it's that uh sort of the uh, uh- uh world's collide kind of a thing kind of <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh but you know at one point he said he uh he said he agreed with me on something. But he didn't actually listen to the whole show. You know, he's talking about Star Trek. He said he actually he he actually agreed with our assessment of Star Trek, which is good because he's a nerd. The first thing he taught me ever in in my meetings with him, uh, he he taught me had to teach me how to run because I am that deficient physically <laughs> that he had to teach me how to run. And the what he said was this: I knew it was meant to be. I knew that that this complete jerk for what he does to me each week, would be important to me in my life. He said, uh, he's, he's, he watches me walk around the track, and he says, uh, okay, so you know when old Spock is talking to young Spock, or a young <laughs> uh, Scotty, uh-huh. and giving him the, uh, the uh, equation for transwarp beaming, and he says, imagine, you know, space is the thing that's moving? hmm That's what I want you to think about when you're running wow and i knew right then i it, it made a connection i i a i've never run the same way b i've never seen star trek in the same light either because now uh, I, it's a, it was that impactful of a moment. the big
0: question is have you have you gone into hyperspace when you run
1: i think that i actually i'm not sure because so many <laughs> so many of my <laughs> weekly sessions with jamie i don't actually remember i just have blacked out
0: so for all you know we're talking 10 years ago. We are.
1: We do well we go for the 3-day burn, right? If he says if you can still use your body after 3 days, then I haven't done my job right. So I I need to I need has to hurt to the point where I can't move or drive or anything for 3 days. And so and that's that's where we are. We met on Monday and I'm just barely standing up right now. Wow. Um, but he also said something else of our movie that I told him the movie we were doing tonight. And he said something that I thought was amusing and spot on. And I'm going to share it with you now. You know, this Paul Giamatti is in this mm. movie we're talking about tonight. That's right. And he says of Paul Giamatti, <laughs> I thought it was quite astute, Jamie says. He says, uh, you know, when actors, they go to this uh, acting school, and I'm sure this comes up at some point. Where they have to go to a class and they have to be, uh, they have to practice, uh, you know, delivering their lines while they're eating. I bet Paul Giamatti was really good at that. (laughs) (laughs) I I guess that's a good thing, right? You go, Giamatti, with Uh, your mouth
0: full. That's like a totally different kind of acting school, right? It's it's like remember in uh, Vegas va- Vacation, right? When they're they're trying to make their money back and they don't have enough, so they go to like the really really chintzy <laughs> casino where instead of you know, roulette and poker and blackjack, they're playing you know what number is in my head, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> just uh, you know, the most inane games. That's, that's that's exactly it. That's uh, Paul Giamatti's acting school.
1: He's that good. In the best way. In the the best way. Paul, now you're going to put 18 marbles in your mouth. (laughs) 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 Go, Horatio, go. (laughs) uh you can find out more about us at the dot com. we invite you to go there and uh check out the uh, site listen to past shows we've got lots of them we're uh what are we on 84 episode 84 this week is that true It uh, uh, is very true we're very excited about episode 84 of our continuing uh series of uh movies about magic made in 2006 <laughs> yeah it's it's morphed a little bit as yeah. we've gotten uh, yeah. from
0: last week to this week we've uh uh, we've we've changed,
1: we've modified some things, but it's still very exciting. And uh, and so uh, we invite you to head over there. You can head over to Facebook dot com slash the next reel or Twitter dot com slash the next reel, and you can keep up with us uh, and movie talk over there. But Facebook is really where things are, where where any discussion is happening. And and uh, we've got uh, the good and kindly. Uh, you may know him from uh, hit podcasts such as the next reel, the film board. Uh, Steve Sarmento <laughs> posts regularly uh, uh, with us over on uh, on Facebook and. Uh, So we uh, deeply thank him for joining the club over there.
0: And I believe while we're talking about that, we should mention that there is a film board conversation this Saturday night.
1: How excited are you about this uh, movie for the weekend?
0: I I feel like I'm more excited about this movie than I have been about uh, a good number of our past uh, movies. Not to say that I haven't been excited, but this one just, there's something about it that just really, really gets me excited.
1: I know. And I really worry about that. I, worry, I do too. <laughs> I mean, absolutely because every single movie we've done has been mediocre to lame yeah that we've gotten together as a group and so this weekend uh the film board coming up saturday night we're going to be doing now you see me the new mark zuckerberg film and um we're very excited to to do this this is a uh, a well, magic heist movie
0: yeah and that, it's our crossover yes. from our magician series to our heist series yes so it's very exciting
1: uh, very appropriately that they um they mixed they, they put this movie right in the middle of our series series almost, uh,
0: almost yeah it's, it's not quite perfectly in the yeah. middle of the two but could it's be still, better yeah they, we could have could have worked yeah. that out thanks a lot uh whoever's releasing now you see me <laughs>
1: Zuckerberg yeah. uh okay so that is uh i think what did i miss anything i have been all over the place itunes oh yeah you should go there you can subscribe to the show by far you can go to the com. you can find the rss feed and and uh, a link to the itunes uh podcast directory so whatever your podcast uh, uh tool of choice i'm a downcast user for example what are you are you using downcast
0: i am using downcast now
1: you can it, it's a it's a a handy tool big shout out to downcast you can if you're a downcast user if you are a uh, apple's podcast user if you uh, just uh, subscribe in itunes you can find the show in a number of different ways Uh, from the website. But if you go to the iTunes store and you uh, happen to search for us and visit our iTunes page, leave us a kindly review uh, and uh, drop uh, five of your spare stars. That helps other people discover the show and it's a a very nice thing to do. It will deliver unto you great karma. Absolutely. It's a karma machine in there. It's a karma machine. just going like gangbusters. Yep. Get her done. Get her done. Um... So, okay, so shall we uh, shall we talk trailers? Absolutely. I'm pretty, uh, well, you do yours first because it's... Uh... I, I'm pretty excited about it. I know you're I not, know you are. not
0: quite as excited. But it's it's a, a film directed by a buddy of mine here in Phoenix uh, called Speak No Evil. It actually just premiered this past weekend here <laughs> That's in That's an Phoenix. ironic
1: title. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Considering how uh, evil the it film is. Yeah,
1: it doesn't look sweet.
0: It's, it, it's, it's a horror film. Rose, uh, Rose directed it. He's a, uh, uh, great director. He he really loves playing around in the horror genre and does some, uh, some pretty creepy stuff. He, uh, they premiered it this past weekend and then it played again at the Phoenix Comic Con this weekend, which, uh, was a, a wonderful time. And, They are slowly going to be doing a few more premieres around the country, and then they are going to be opening it on a new distribution site that they have that they're starting up called uh, MindPlate.tv. And so people can go to MindPlate and watch short films. They can watch uh, features like this, all sorts of stuff. I think it's going to be premiering on MindPlate shortly after its its final uh, release. Uh, Let's see, it's premiering this thursday night uh so actually uh it will have passed in la i guess and then it's going to be up in detroit friday june 7th and then it'll be at the falls horror fest in niagara falls if any of you are around there june 8th and 9th it's going to be playing there and uh and then shortly after that it'll be up on Mindplate. and you can uh watch it right there on uh you can download it and watch it on their screen or whatever you want to do
1: that's very cool it's yeah, not, it's, a, it's, it's a pretty. It's a. It looks uh pretty scary.
0: It's a creepy trailer. Uh, talking to uh Rose, it's a um and and his lovely wife Candace, who uh, produced it with him. They say it's not a, a just a, like a a slasher horror film. I mean, there's definitely blood in the trailer. It really plays that up, but they say it's a lot more of the kind of older school, um, almost a PG-13 type of horror. That's really more about the jumps. And making you just jump out of your seat. So, you know, I'm maybe, it's, gonna, a good, maybe it's a good date say, movie.
1: That's not the trailer. That, 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 I said, uh, you, the what trailer. you just described <laughs> is not that trailer. That's right. That what what I just saw was parano- full on like paranormal activity, uh what was the, the evil dead Right. There was there was a lot of blood and mouth blood. Yeah, an enormous is. amount of mouth blood and <laughs> chewing blood.
0: It is a little creepy. It's it's about a uh, um single mother who's trying to Fight to protect her daughter from some demonically possessed children and uh, a town gone mad. Looks pretty creepy.
1: Yeah, okay. All right. No, I, you know, I, to each his own. I'm not, (laughs) what I have, I've become less of that guy.
0: That's, and that's okay.
1: And so that's why my trailer this week is absolutely not a horror movie. In fact,. (laughs) it's everything uh, absolutely but absolutely not it is everything but uh we're ta- i'm talking about about time which is a uh, richard curtis written and directed uh, uh it's a, it's a wee bit of a british uh love story in the vein of uh you know notting hill love actually uh and uh, appropriately so because Richard Curtis also wrote and directed those films. So if pretty much if you uh if if you're into uh well he did Pirate Radio too. That was good. Did he wrote uh, he's he's been mostly a writer so this is kind of a, a transition. He wrote all the Bridget Jones things. Anyhow, this is uh About Time is uh uh is it's fantastic. It's about a uh young British guy, Tim who discovers that his family secret is that he can, if he goes into a closet and clenches his fist real, real tight, he can travel through time. And so it's one of these wonderful uh, romantic comedies uh, in which the protagonist can keep redoing stuff that he screws up. And I find these stories absolutely charming, even though they feel like they came right out of the bottom of a cereal box. I love them. And uh, that's my dirty secret of the of the week.
0: You know what I have to say is it's about time that Rachel McAdams got herself in another time traveling romance movie.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't going to say anything about that. Uh, That's fantastic. She's uh, you know that Rachel McAdams. I like her too.
0: Yeah. She's pretty
1: fantastic. She's pretty fantastic. Uh, Yeah. yeah, You know, it's funny. She was in. Did you see uh, The Lucky Ones? I didn't. That was another uh, Neil Berger, one of the few other Neil Berger films that we're right. uh, from that we going to be talking about one of his tonight. And so, uh, yeah, she was great in that, too. Uh, anyway, I'm very much looking forward to this. comes out uh, November 8th, 2013. It is a comedy-drama sci-fi. hmm A rom-com-time. Rom-time-com? <laughs> no, there's nothing. There. nothing uh, there. uh, you tried. I did. Noble it's closed. Yeah. Uh, so those are the trailers for the week. You can check out the trailers and uh, uh, over on the, uh, uh, in the show notes at uh, thenextreel.com slash TNR slash The Illusionist. Uh, the dash illusionist, actually. So just head All over right. to the next reel. You can catch up with uh, the detailed show notes and links to everything we talk about in this episode. Uh I should add next week or last week we talked about a new list our favorite movies about people on their own. <laughs> right? Yeah, right? how is that coming along? Well, I started I I started uh the list, and you'll see in our uh, Evernote uh, note. I started the list and I've got uh I got The uh, Castaway. Uh-huh. I Am Legend. There you go. The Wall, which we talked about last week. I haven't even right, seen right. it yet, but it's on the list. Uh I put uh, Into the Wild on there. Okay. Uh Life of Pi. Kind of uh, alone. Kind, yeah. You know, <laughs> I guess. A...
0: Uh, yeah. Without spoiling anything. But... Right.
1: Exactly. I put uh, touching the void on there uh, oh. and uh, open water. Ooh. Right. Uh, but what was the, uh, there was one other you mentioned that, uh, that I had not put on there yet. And I can't remember what it was. Was it uh, the 127 hours or. Well, that's a good one, but
0: that's not what I said. I don't know. What. Oh,
1: so uh, I'll add 127 hours. i on that one. Okay. So we'll get, I'll get that list up uh, in the list section. Uh, of the uh, site, so you can join. But if anybody has any other uh, suggestions of great movies about uh, uh, people stranded or otherwise shipwrecked on their own, I'm not, I, and no, I'm not adding Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> uh, then please uh, shoot them our way. All right. Let's talk about this movie. Absolutely. The Illusionist.
0: This was a strangely popular year for stage magician films
1: what is up with that
0: i don't know i mean i know that there's these weird cycles in hollywood where they end up having two of the virtually same film come out at the same time uh like deep impact and armageddon or this year we've got olympus uh has fallen and white house down it's it's strange it's it's these weird little things in hollywood and uh you know oddly enough there were 3 in 2006 so it'll three in be 2006
1: a... and you know what i find most interesting about that that uh that here we are having 3 movies about stage magicians that end up being remarkably different movies yeah and that surprised me. My memory of The Illusionist was that it was a—it uh, ended up being a knockoff of The Prestige, because I, I really liked The Prestige as much as I did. Watching this movie again this week, uh, I sort of rediscovered uh, a love for it, but not the same things that I remember loving about it. Um, it happened in roughly the same time period. Uh, yeah. you know, uh, uh, kind of the same world that they, they, they try to capture, uh, in, in spite of being different countries. Um, and, and yet, uh, different, it, it's a movie about different things and I found it, uh, fascinating.
0: Yeah. It was a very interesting, uh, difference between the two films, uh, that I think worked in their favor. And that's, you know, talking about films that they feel like Hollywood, you know, somebody left one on the photocopier and somebody uh, uh, took it and went to make their own version of that. Like the ones that I just mentioned, these ones feel like, yes, they all deal in the world of, of stage magicians, but they definitely feel different. You know, the prestige was very much a film about this rivalry between, between these two men, uh, magicians and their journey to be the best that there was. This one is really just kind of a love story about a man who, uh, finds his true love when he's young and, even though they're separated by, by, uh, you know, social class, they, uh, as they, when they're older, we come back to them later in life. They, he finds a way to bring them together. It's, it's very much more of a love story, a like kind of a mystery love story than the prestige was.
1: That's exactly what I was, uh, what I was thinking. The prestige in, in so far as it is more, more sort of hardcore rooted in magic, the magic in the illusionist ends up being a setting. Um, more than anything else uh yeah. it, although the the magic in the movies is uh, in the movie is uh, fascinating the more you kind of dig into it and i uh, will talk more about kind of the use of cg versus the use of practical magic in the right in the film um they made some interesting choices i, I don't necessarily think to the credit of the film but um uh, in any case what what stands out to you in this film as uh uh, as its as its real strengths uh as you're watching it again this is uh we we should say this was the this was the magic movie uh written and directed by Neil Berger based on the book uh based on the short story eisenheim the illusionist the illusionist uh, uh, <laughs> by, written by stephen milhauser uh, and it's in the collection. It's in a collection of short stories that Barnum. Uh, well, the, the links Barnum, in the show notes. The,
0: bar, the Barnum Museum.
1: Barnum Museum, yeah. And it's on our on our website as it's well. It's on the website as well. Uh, Edward Norton, Paul Giamatti, Jessica Biel, uh, and uh, uh, oh my goodness, Rufus the fantastic Sewell. Rufus Sewell. Yes. Uh, so those are the key players. What what stands out to you as as uh, particularly strong in this film?
0: You know, first of all, I think the the film that or the thing that struck me the most rewatching this film was the incredibly gorgeous cinematography by dick pope it's just a sumptuous film it feels just i mean there's something almost tangible about the way the film looks i just i couldn't get enough of looking at this film in every frame it was just like a work of art okay okay
1: you gotta you gotta talk more about that what exactly was it about every frame that you found really appealing because i'm i am very torn on this point
0: Hmm. Interesting. You know, I, it was, it was the, uh, the, the palette that they chose to use, the color palette that gave it this feel that it almost had kind of this earthy sepia quality to it that just felt like it was a distant memory. And not just that, but also the way that they used, um, irises throughout the film and, uh, just old film school techniques that really just in a way, it reminded me a lot of um, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. The way that they used these these kind of old school tools to really enhance the cinematography and and give it this, I, I, I want to say almost an otherworldliness, but it's really just makes me feel like I really kind of stepped back and I'm watching these memories of the past. And I think that's why I am so drawn to the cinematography in this
1: film. I, I I'll tell you why I'm torn, and then I you can get back to your to your uh, review here. I I am torn because I think they for me they went sort of a bridge too far on the um, on the uh, kind of film decay look uh, yeah. uh, of it. You know when you it, it feels to me very much like I just walked into a a, a tent uh for a uh, for you know for a silent film review you know i mean it was it's that every frame i i totally agree with you i think the the sepia kind of toning is luscious uh i think it does a great thing for the film in general but then they end up doing this weird sort of uh, you know the the iris sort of vignetting uh, mm-hmm. that shows up uh, more intensely i think in the flashback uh right segments than in but it's it's throughout the entire film is this is this vignetting that is to me it, it comes off as dizzying and i i think that's that's uh, a choice that i think just dis- it's a distracting choice from from a consistent watch of the film i, I had trouble with that hmm. but anyway so go ahead
0: no, I I mean I it's and I can I can see how one would see that. It's it is very consistent and it's in your face. You know, I've always been a fan of filmmakers who aren't afraid to really put the filmmaking techniques in your face, much like uh, watching Hot Fuzz or uh any of those uh sorts of films where it's just like the the camera moves, the way that everything is alive as far as the movement within the camera the way that the actors and the camera relationships are it all feels very live and it's constantly reminding me that i'm watching a movie but there's something really invigorating about that that gives the film a different energy that i i never find distracting and in this film i i definitely was aware that it was happening that the the uh irising was going on and the vignetting and and just kind of this almost a this this technique used to make it look like old film um I, I never found it distracting i it was one of those techniques that i acknowledged and i was very excited that they were doing it and i just kind of saw past it and it was just more and more excited every time it happened
1: all right i mean so. i can i i i absolutely see that and like i said for me it was just a little bit far so, i i think what were the what were the uh the Wyatt Earp movies there was Wyatt Earp, and what was the other one Tombstone. Tombstone. I mean, I I think one of those had this a similar effect. Maybe it was Wyatt Earp, and it was just it was that same thing. It was like this is just too old fashioned for me. Yeah. Uh, I, like I I did found myself thinking there's something wrong with the with the display. Like I'm getting burn in in the corners or something. It was it was too much. So anyhow.
0: Yeah. It's 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 you know it's definitely a choice that the director chose to make with his film that some people are going to like some people aren't going to like and i completely acknowledge that it's uh, it it again it's something that works for me so you yeah. know it's 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 a anytime any director makes choices like that with their film where they're really putting their technique right out in front for you to notice i mean it it could uh, be something that backfires for them yeah and so they have to acknowledge that when they're making the, those choices truth so truth. Uh, And, you know, Dick Pope was nominated for an Oscar for his work in this. He lost out to Guillermo Navarro, who won for Pan's Labyrinth, one of your all-time favorites.
1: You're doing that sarcasm thing again.
0: It looks great. Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah, I did. It looked great, except for the content. (laughs) Dick Pope, we've talked (laughs) about before, he did Dark City. Yes. No, that's true. That is a very, uh, no, you're right. That's uh, high points for me. Yeah, yeah. And that you know interesting comparison too because Dark City is another one that has uh, that that as you say it sort of wears its cinematography on its sleeves. Um uh, lots of of kind of filmmaking techniques very much on display. Yeah. Uh, in that film.
0: And perhaps it works well in a film like that because of the sci-fi nature of the mm-hmm. film it may come across as less in your face whereas a period piece it is something that may come across as a little distracting. Now again maybe it worked for me uh, because of this feel of the old techniques that they were applying to the film, um, that worked really well, as opposed to if it was Edgar Wright who was directing yes. this and using his techniques that he uses in his films, that may have been distracting to a point where i wasn't very happy
1: <laughs> We don't want to make you unhappy no we don't <laughs> no we don't okay uh, so let's uh what else do you love about this film? keep going.
0: I, I think I love I, I love the love story. I love the mystery of it. Th- watching it a second time, I did find I enjoyed it a little less than I did the first time. I actually knew uh, I knew there was a twist. I couldn't quite remember what the full twist was, but I I kind of knew it was there, and I was trying to remember the pieces that were going to fall in place for me. Um, when I got to the end, I found myself a little uh, a little disappointed. And I'll talk about the specifics of that maybe a little later, um, but, you know, I think what I did love about it was this love story and this connection between Edward Norton's character, Eisenheim, the magician, and, and Jessica Biel's character as uh, Duchess Sophie von Teschen. I There's something I really uh, connected to with that, and I found it really touching and and uh and believable and I, I that for me is what really made it a strong film
1: i uh i agree with you and it's uh, you know as much as i love edward norton uh generally and you know we've talked about uh, fight club is one of our very very favorites and uh I, I love his performance in that film i think he's very strong we've talked obviously about the born um the born legacy, legacy, <laughs> the born triumphant, <laughs> uh, and his role there, and and I think you were higher on him in that film than I was, but still very strong. Um, the the thing about him in this movie is, I I I think he's the weakest point in this film. Um, I I certainly don't buy the accent; I find it distracting and and inconsistent, um, and. Uh, I think he gets in the way of the people that I really want to watch, which are the other three. Uh, Paul mm-hmm. Giamatti. To me, this is a Paul Giamatti film. I mean, I I am most interested and intrigued by his dogged uh, detective uh, uh, persona, and uh, I think he has uh, absolutely, even when his mouth, Notoriously good when his mouth is full, uh, <laughs> he is. He has the most consistent performance throughout. The most interesting, uh, and is balanced perfectly by uh, Rufus Sewell, who is a terrific, um, you know, maniacal. Uh, uh, tyrant tyrant yeah i mean he's he is terrific and and that his he he brings this fantastic bipolar uh, kind of reactionary um uh, approach to his um to his dealings with eisenheim and and um uh you know the the their kind of emotional duel when he invites uh eisenheim to uh, to come to his home and do a private show to all of the best minds mm-hmm. uh, you know you offer us tricks, I offer you enlightenment, which is the most noble, you know, which is more yeah. noble. I mean, that's just a fantastic sequence uh, where you really get to see uh, him uh, spin out of control in his head. And and yeah. he portrays that absolutely beautifully. And uh, it, it is a performance, I think, that is unmatched by uh, Norton's Eisenheim in this film. Um, that's not to say that it's not a good performance i just find it you know sort of the distracting from the better ones um jessica beale isn't actually in the film all that much no she's not but uh you know i would i would uh i would engage in in trickery for for jessica in this film yes absolutely she's, she's a she's a delight let's just leave it at that. she
0: she is she definitely is you know i i can agree i've seen with...
1: stealth a thousand times what <laughs>
0: Uh, I'm you were great. You, you were
1: agreeing with me. Let's go back to that.
0: <laughs> you what? I, I do agree with you. I, um, as much as I do enjoy the love story in this film, because that to me, I really connect to, and maybe it's just the, the battle of, you know, the socioeconomic class between the two as they, as they grow up and they, they still want this love that is torn by this, this awful tyrant. But, I do agree with you. I, I I guess I don't really have a problem with Edward Norton in, in this film. He works, uh, he works fine for me. It, it, he's never really bothered me. Um, his accent, I've always looked past. Paul Giamatti, you're right, though, is stellar in this film, as is Rufus Sewell. I find both of them very engaging to watch. I love seeing the scenes uh, between those two. I love the interesting uh, conversation that uh, Giamatti's character, Inspector Uhl, has with Eisenheim about the nature of his relationship with uh, the Crown Prince Leopold, played by Rufus Sewell, and how even though it may seem like they're friends, they're really not, because there is this um, economic gulf between the two of them. And as as close as Inspector Uhl is to the Crown Prince, he's never going to be at that level. And that was just a very—his his point about that that he brought up a number of times— I really enjoyed I, I enjoyed the way that Paul Giamatti played that as a guy who struggled with this kind of economic difference between him and his employer um but was happily going along with it uh you know as long as as long as he was getting something out of it and you know I mean becoming maybe the the you know what was it? The chief of police, and eventually right. the mayor. I mean, those are great promises. To well, have.
1: and and to your point, I mean, those sequences, the sequence, uh, any of the sequences between uh, Giamatti and Sewell, uh, and the sequences, uh, the sequence that you're speaking of, when he the the I am the son of a butcher speech, uh-huh. uh, I, I think were were really expertly crafted. I mean, that was that was uh, there was just a wonderful bit of screenwriting in there from Neil Berger, where we actually you you see that sort of um, uh, the dialogue turnabout here, when when you know that that um, uh, Eisenheim is trying to get him to say, you know, you're you're under the wing of royalty, uh, and uh, and and there's there's this sort of trickery that he's trying to pull, this verbal trickery, and yet uh, I, I, Inspector Uhl. Uh, doesn't fall for it. It's like this. This is a sequence in which, knowing that otherwise he is absolutely intellectually a- uh, overpowered by, um, uh, you know, by Eisenheim and as as the magician, uh, you know, you you don't get to pay, play social politics with uh, Inspector Uhl. He always knows where he came from. And, right, and there's there is no trick there, uh, and I thought that was just such a powerful sequence. I mean, I ju- you could just watch that again and again. Um, that and the um, you know, as the the film plays out, the uh, the climax of the film when when Inspector Ull confronts um, uh, and and ultimately attempts to arrest the crown prince. Right. Um, uh, that sequence is equally powerful. Um, just language, I, I thought was uh, to, for me those were two absolute highlights.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Even though <laughs> this is this is going to be my my point, uh, even though um, um Was
1: I interrupting that whole my whole monologue was interrupting a point?
0: No, 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 no. yours. No, absolutely not. No. Oh, my, I my, I would my feel point, bad about that. No, no, no. My point's going back to something I was going to say about the ending of the film which uh is is something that bothered me more the second time watching it than it did the first time. As the inspector uh of this of this uh city that they're living in or villa or whatever it is i i when we get to the end and the big reveal happens which uh, you know spoiler alert even though it's uh you know seven years old we see how eisenheim and sophie had really planned this whole escape for quite a while and they had figured out a way to essentially Um, follow through on something that Uhl had said earlier about how the only way that the crown prince will let uh, you two, or will stop chasing you two is if you're both dead. And so he creates this whole elaborate trick that almost makes it seem like they're both dead. I mean, Sophie for sure, Eisenheim completely has disappeared. And then they essentially frame the crown prince for her murder, even though she's not dead. Now, the crown prince was a bastard. He was abusive. He was, he was, plotting to take over his father's throne. I mean he's not a nice guy. But uh, and so, you know, in a way I guess I'm happy to see him go. But at the same time I'm like, yeah, but now the chief inspector is like laughing at the joy of this trick pulled by Eisenheim over everybody while this crown prince was wrongfully framed for murder and killed himself.
1: Well maybe you're making too big of a deal out okay, of it. Okay, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and <laughs> I'm gonna try and, and and uh ease your burden. Okay, thank you, because it is a burden. He wasn't laughing until... Or it, it, he wasn't laughing...
0: Ull he's you know, at the train station when he catches on what, to what's going on. You're right,
1: talking. that was. Am I wrong? Because this is this is another one of those films where the editing is is you know really important. Uh, editing from Naomi Garrity. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it becomes a very
0: um, uh, usual suspects type it, of montage at the end.
1: Very much so. Now, was the laughing at the train station? Was are you are you dead sure that it was after the assassination, or the, after the uh, the uh, not assassination after the suicide? Yeah. I he thought follows it was him right to the before. train station.
0: No, because that's like right at the end of the film, right? He follows him to the train station, has his giggles, as he realizes what happened.
1: Right, and, and then he goes and, to and see then, the prince. No,
0: and then we cut to the two of them at their
1: cabin up in the mountains. And that's the end of the film. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I may give that to you. But here's the thing that this is this is why I, I buy it. Because throughout the film, we have these cues that Walter Uhl is on the side of Eisenheim, right? Sure. He says a number of times throughout the film, I am not completely corrupt. That's why I'm telling you, please don't do what you're doing, right? I am here as a—you know, their first meeting together in the back of uh, backstage at the theater, their first meeting when he does the trick with the hand against the forehead— the the subtext in that film, to me, is so clear that they are on the same side, and Paul Giamatti is simply trying to, or Ull's role in this, is simply trying to grease the skids between the performer and a very finicky audience member, right? But ultimately, his allegiance, Ull's allegiance, is with the proletariat, right? It's with the the people of of, it's with the people, it's with the sons of the butchers. And even so,
0: even even the murderers, <laughs> or the the ones who 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 frame people for murder.
1: No, I you know I don't I I don't think so because I don't think that uh, uh I don't think that you know my impression is that Ull didn't uh, w- was fine with him killing himself with uh, the the I don't think he had any allegiance beyond uh, no. riding the coattails for political gain. Right? I mean, he was not he he was no dummy
0: well he was happy
1: to do that uh, yeah. as long
0: as as long as leopold the crown prince wasn't a horribly awful guy
1: and he was a horribly awful guy and yeah but he wasn't a murderer and that's what but he was a murderer. We already knew that he had uh, that the you know the rumors were already s- uh, swirling that he had yeah. killed others I- in the past and and dropped their bodies off to prevent them from from coming a, clean. I think a body. Right. I think yeah. I think he was a mass murderer, and it was many <laughs> many bodies. I think he was Jack the Ripper. I think he was he was. <laughs> you see my point though. I feel like I guess my argument I, is I think they made enough of a case. Uh, well they they did to me yes that it, they, it doesn't make ool because when you the way you put it makes ool the sociopath and i don't think he was no i'm just saying it's you know for the police chief to re- it, it, it's like
0: he should be realizing that the wool was pulled over his eyes yes the wool was pulled over
1: ool's eyes <laughs> was he, it the wool over ool it was the ool wool it was the ool wool <laughs> wool.
0: and and instead of just giggling at the train station about it, he should have gone, that son of a monkey, I am going to go arrest him. Yes. He, well, I'm oh, making, okay. I'm I mean, making too big of a deal of it. It really is a minor plot point, <laughs> but it was just one of those things that I'm just like, well, come on. I know the crown prince was a horrible guy, but now these two are framing him for murder just so they can get away and be together. And the inspector is totally okay with
1: it well because the inspector like there was no uh, it's not as though they uh, i mean i see your point they did frame him for murder in order to get away frame. right that and that's he right. killed himself because he was framed for but murder. he did not kill himself but there was no way for anyone else to know that he was going to kill himself it's not like they no. made him kill himself right he he was he was not stable so here's a question for
0: you completely speculative would if the crown prince did not kill himself (laughs) we're like it's just some strange tangent here if the crown prince had not killed himself but inspector Uhl had instead arrested him and then he went to the train station and realized that eisenheim and sophie had pulled the Uhl wool over his eyes (laughs) would he then have freed the crown prince because he wasn't actually guilty
1: Well that is a great question Man, I think he probably would have because he also was not, uh, you know, it, it's okay that he doesn't have to feel bad about the fact that this tyrant has actually killed himself. Right. Uh, and even when he kills himself, you, you notice his position over the body is, is he's kind of relaxed and it's like that, uh well, the crown prince has killed himself. Right. Oh, shucks. oh well. <laughs> <laughs> who's next? But but I, I also don't I also think that he was, you know, he was a functionary, right? And that means his role was to was to observe and apply the law accordingly, right? Sure. And so I think if he observes that there that the facts are different than than those that he is he was otherwise made aware, he would have freed the crown prince. Yeah. And now whether or not he would have as doggedly pursued Eisenheim and Sophie, I think that's a different question.
0: I Yeah, I don't think he would.
1: I don't think he would. He is the son of a butcher. He's got to be true to his character. That's right. Oh, that was Yeah, that's good. Okay. Uh, So, (laughs) uh, then, and this is, you know, I don't know. Here I'm looking at the poster, and this, I think the poster is so deceiving since the movie for me is really about Paul Giamatti, and in fact, there are no crystal balls in this thing at all. What's everyone <laughs> doing holding a crystal ball all lit up? Uh yeah. what do you think of the magic?
0: Yeah, you know, I like the magic. I think it's fun. It's one of those magic films where you know, I'm always torn watching films with people performing magic, going, okay, are they really performing magic? And you know, they the a magician uh actually trained the actor how to do it. Or is it pure digital fabrication on the part of the filmmakers so that they can make something look really super cool? To me, and I know you've done more research than I have on this, but to me, it seems like most of these tricks in this film are CG.
1: It does seem that way. Yes. And this is where I am frustrated by this film. Okay. Uh so the ball tricks, uh the throwing of the orange tricks, um uh, you know the any of the hand tricks, those tricks, uh they uh, according to you know what I have read on uh, multiple sources that there were there were three uh key uh, uh trainers uh of magic uh who stepped in James Friedman, Ricky Jay, our friend Ricky Jay, Michael mm-hmm. Weber and Scott Penrose actually so four uh, uh you know Magic consultants. Uh, James Friedman did the uh, uh, the vast majority of the of the hands-on uh, close-up magic training for both uh, uh, Eisenheim, the uh, the Edward Norton, and Eisenheim the Young, uh, played by Aaron Johnson. Uh, and so, uh, but you know those tricks, and particularly Aaron Johnson. I mean, all the little ball sleight of hand things that he was doing. Um, those things, you know, were were apparently those were those were real practical uh, close magic sleight of hand tricks. But then yeah. you get to the more to the the uh, I would say the tent pole tricks, right uh the big one in this film in particular is uh the orange tree, and the orange tree gets to my first frustration, okay, so you know the orange tree the orange tree they bring out this this planter. And uh, after Eisenheim does this fancy speech about time and slowing time and speeding time, he cuts open an orange, a real orange, and he takes out the seed and he places the seed into this planter and then holds his hand over the planter and out from the, you know, fresh soil sprouts a plant. And over the course of about 30 seconds, it grows into a fruiting tree. So the flowers, the blooms, orange blooms, and then real orange fruit comes off of the tree he plucks the oranges and tosses them out into the audience for for audience members to inspect and then uh from above the tree two butterflies carrying a handkerchief that he had stolen from one of the audience members earlier on i don't think it's called stealing (laughs) is that is that what it was (laughs) It's yeah. so, uh,
0: this it I reappeared, I, it reappeared
1: <laughs> carried by on the wings of butterflies, uh, over the tree of the audience. That's right. So, this trick is, uh, this particular illusion was, um, you know, I would say what uh, up until the point that he plucks the oranges from the tree, it was a right. CG uh, trick. Yeah,
0: that's what it looked like to me,
1: right? So, it turns out this is a real thing,
0: right. Did you know this? Which doesn't make any sense to me, Did which I, I guess is why it's magic. <laughs> I
1: just dropped a magical knowledge bomb on you. This was wow. a real thing of the time, right? Ah. Wrap your head around that. I don't understand how the fruit could pop out like that. This was conceived of from uh, by a, a magician by the name of Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin. Wow, that was good. Right? He's a French magician. He uh, lived in the, uh, from 1805 to 1871, and uh, according to magicians of the late 1800s uh, and early 1900s, this guy uh, owned the universe because of tricks like the uh, the marvelous orange tree. Wow. And the marvelous orange tree, here's what's so frustrating about it. So I, I there are... Boatloads of links on YouTube if you want to actually see this thing done, and I am not linking them in the show notes because for those of you who want to watch this trick and not see how it's done, um, I encourage you to to do that. But this is a real thing. The thing that's th- that uh, I I think the trick counts on is that um, the practical trick is with a an orange tree in a planter. Right. It it is not done from seed. Mm. Right. So what is presented on stage when Robert Houdin did it is uh, it's wheeled out on stage. It's a planter with the tree already formed. Oh, okay. You see what I'm saying? And then out like magic, these blooms start appearing on it and then oranges start uh, like... Uh, dropping in the in this tree on stage and he plucks them and they're real oranges and then butterflies come out from behind the tree carrying the handkerchief that he had stolen earlier so there's a lot that that I feel like we don't know uh, about the trick and i say we meaning you and me i there obviously there are a lot of people who do know and you can see the the actual mechanics of of how this this uh the tree works if you choose to search for it the trick is the marvelous orange tree uh it was made uh it was developed by robert houdin it was made ver- much more famous by uh houdini who actually took his name as an homage to robert houdin oh right very interesting. Fascinating. I'm learning all sorts of interesting magic. Things this today. is I I'm telling you, man, I have been obsessed by this stuff. And this is what's so frustrating about it. This is a movie that purports to use uh, such rigorous, uh, practical magic techniques of the time. Mm-hmm. And then they make this interesting choice to embellish them with CG in a way that I think was unnecessary right right and 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 I'm, I don't necessarily mean embellishing CG like with maybe the butterflies or you know whatever in this case, they embellished by bringing the um by bringing the the plant to grow from seed, and it makes I, I have been really struggling with my impression of what that does to the character of Eisenheim the illusionist, right mm. um, because it could say one of two things one uh, that in fact Eisenheim uh was conjuring something from uh from uh, you know another plane that he actually right. had power beyond practical magic. Right. Well he
0: did meet a man who disappeared and disappeared the tree too so.
1: Yes, right? There's that, and then the the following tricks, uh, you know, the um, uh, uh, conjuring up the ghosts. Yep. Those are are well written uh, uh, tricks about how to actually conjure using mirrors, and and those those things you can find as well on on the uh, magical YouTube. Uh, y- you can see how those tricks are done and wow. how Eisenheim would have done those. So there's very practical until you get that extra layer of CG trickery that takes it to the next level for the film and right. and so i'm i am torn with and and i'll tell you i'm torn because i don't know if i need that in this character this character is so sort of um he's kind of a sidebar to the story at hand which is the love story i didn't need the embellishment uh, of the the magic because the magic was fantastic on its own
0: yeah that's interesting it's it it does speak to what level of trickery did we need to make the film succeed I mean it gets to a point where we're watching ghost children walk down the aisle who had apparently been outside and people had seen him walking into the theater people put their hands through him he's not there it's like to me the the trickery is done at such a level that the only way it makes sense is that he actually does have some power from the great beyond right and I don't know if that is really the right Tone to have created in this film, particularly because of the way the ending plays out, where we realize that it's all a big trick
1: that was and it was a big trick. it was a big practical trick, right yeah. It was a trick where every step of the trick can be explained by practical means and that's what makes the the punchline of the film, the resolution of the film so satisfying if you've been paying attention because you can puzzle it through right? Mm-hmm. It's right. the usual suspect. It's where the usual suspect succeeds is that if you watch it a thousand times, you can puzzle it through. And right. this movie, there's enough of the uh, embellishments, the CG embellishments to the magic that makes you question your own ability to puzzle it through. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, you know, that's so that's where I feel like it's, it's sort of let down. It's the same sensation I get from those who don't like the prestige, that failure of uh, expectations mm-hmm. that I feel like I'm experiencing with the illusionist yeah um so that's 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 my whole thing
0: yeah it's definitely an interesting point that you bring up and it's one that you know will make me uh rethink my opinions of the film i mean even despite the you know the crazy uh framing theory that i have now but aside from that this nature of the the magical element of the film is it really helping the film out or not i don't know I, I may like it a little less now. Well, I Thanks. think
1: it's I, well. You're you're very welcome uh, <laughs> with all kindnesses. I it is the thing that that you know apart from everything else because I so deeply appreciate what Rufus Sewell and Paul Giamatti and and uh, to a lesser extent uh, uh, you know the other two Yahoos in this film to to what they they deliver in this movie and what Neil Berger did with this movie I think is is uh, I think it's great. It's I, I I like this movie. I like it actually more. Than I did when I started watching it this week. I, my memory of it was less. That happens pretty rarely on this show, right? Yeah, right. Uh, I, I actually, I, I appreciate it more. But I find the things that trouble me about it are, are different than the things that used to trouble me about it. And so, you know, now I really, I, I wonder how much we need him to be a spiritual kind of uh, sorcerer. Right. Uh, and, and um, it, it comes as a disservice to this movie that has otherwise made a promise of practicality. That's my pitch. Sounds good to me. Uh, All right. So uh, you want to talk about... uh, Do you have other things or should we talk about numbers and stuff? Uh, Just one last thing.
0: Uh, Well, uh, um, Eddie Marsan is in this. He's an actor who I always enjoy, even though I'm always slightly creeped out by him. And I think it's because... He's manager. Yeah, he's the manager. Yeah. yeah. I think it's because of his role in Happy-Go-Lucky, where he had some of the worst teeth I've ever seen. (laughs) And... uh, and I, I couldn't like him. And now I always think about his teeth when I see him. So as much as I love him, because he's been in just about everything. everything. I mean, he's, he's a very, very popular uh, actor. Kind of these character actors in, in England that ends up in everything. Uh, a fantastic guy. But yeah, I always think about his bad teeth now when I see him. I don't know if that's uh, the direction I want to go with it when I see him.
1: That's too bad, because he's such a, a charming little man in this film. He is in in every
0: film he's you, been in, except for Happy Go Lucky.
1: You know, I I want to I want to say before we before we move on to the numbers real quick, I forgot uh, the music is done by Philip Glass.
0: That was my next thing. Yeah.
1: If this isn't one of the top uh, scores, certainly of of 2006 magic films, uh, I I, <laughs> I think it's. Uh, I then I think that's a real uh, mistake. Uh, I I adore the music in this film.
0: I do too, and and Philip Glass is one of those composers who. Uh, you know some people say he's a minimal- minimalist. He says that he is a composer of music with repetitive structures I think that defines him really well because I don't find anything minimal about his music. I find it lush and just uh, Full I uh, can I can I say maximal? <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know if I should but uh, I'm gonna say it's maximal music it I love the structures I love the repetitiveness of it. I love listening to his scores and i mean he's been score He's you know he's been a composer um, on and off for a very long time he started scoring films i believe his first film was the uh, uh the Katsi film the um
1: Katsi Katsi Coen yeah. yeah
0: i think that was his first film and uh, since then he has been uh just writing uh a, a wide variety of projects a number of which are films and i find his film music just just wonderful to listen to his score for um, Martin Scorsese's uh, – um, I'm just blanking on the name of it right now. the um, Why am I forgetting the name of it? The, uh, the Dalai Lama film Kundun. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I just find that score, one of his uh, most powerful scores, and The Fog of War, he did a um, – New score for the 1931 film Dracula. That's a a beautiful score. The Hours, Notes of a Scandal. Uh, Just fantastic music all the time. And in this film... It really, and maybe, again, it, tie, it helps me feel that lushness with the look of the film and why I'm so attached to the way this film looks. But his lush music really feels right for the time and, and this story. And the way that the film looks paired with the music, I feel just, it, it's like a uh, two
1: great tastes that taste great together. I was just going to say all of that. <laughs> uh, I can't leave out Errol Morris' The Thin Blue Line. That's right. Uh, which is one of my favorites. Uh, and... Uh, that's it yep yeah uh, okay so let's talk about uh, money did pretty well
0: it did pretty well for itself um this film as one of the so far two films that we've talked about in 2006 was made for less money it had a 16.5 million dollar budget with production uh or a P&A budget of 13.5 so total budget of 30 million dollars and domestically, it grossed almost $40 million and internationally about $44 million. So it made its money back handsomely. And as a film that's only 109 minutes long, it made more money per finished minute than The Prestige did, <laughs> <laughs> which actually made more money all told, but because it's a 130-minute film... Uh, the illusionist made almost $500,000 per finished minute the prestige only about 328,000 per finished minute
1: so uh, where does that where does that put those relatively
0: um on our list of films the illusionist is number 27 and the prestige is number 38
1: fantastic
0: nothing has yet to crack indiana jones and the kingdom, and the kingdom, of, kingdom the of the crystal skull, skull. <laughs> sad to say <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right. All right. So uh the film uh it did pretty well and it was it's worth checking out I think this movie. I, yeah, I mean it's it's a very enjoyable
0: watch. Yeah. It really is. It uh it's very easy to get into it and to just uh to go along with the ride the whole time. If you just, you know, don't think about the things that Pete and I brought brought up as far as the the uh, framing at the end and the, uh, and the, the fake uh, magic or the, you know, the CG magic that was unnecessary. I I'm sure that uh, you'll have a great time watching it.
1: I, I think so. And, and uh, it's a good, it's a good uh, period of film. Uh, also, if you can get past the awkward vignetting. So it's got some thorns. <laughs> it does. <laughs> um,
0: every rose has its thorn. Oh, see,
1: there you go. That's good. Carried, <laughs> carried by butterflies. That's right. Uh, Where are we going from here? So we're doing our crossover. That's uh, this weekend.
0: This weekend is our crossover, our magician heist film, Now You Mm -hmm. See Me. And then next week, we're jumping to uh, another 2006 heist
1: film, Woody Allen's (laughs) Scoop. Which is ironically uh, inclusive of two other uh, stars from The Prestige. Right. Hugh Jackman and Scarlett Johansson. Not only did Hollywood come at us with three stage magic movies in 2006, two of the three of them include two of the same stars.
0: Yeah, crazy.
1: And neither of us have seen it, so it'll be interesting right.
0: to watch it and see uh, what we report. I am, I'm but we felt I'm because of it, it almost was an obligation to do this film because of the uh, the tie-in to the 2006 magician series.
1: I I can't believe I, I honestly I had never even heard of this film. This came and went so, and I I actually uh, I think I like Woody Allen more than you do. Right?
0: I I I'm an on and off Woody
1: Allen guy. Yeah, I I'm actually I I consider myself a fan of Woody Allen, and uh, I still I had never. Heard of this film, it just yeah. was there, and I, maybe it never came to my city. It uh, definitely
0: slipped under the rug for me.
1: Absolutely, so I'm really looking forward to seeing it and adding it to the collection. And uh, so it's uh, we're going to roll the dice on this one.
0: Yeah, it'll be an interesting conversation. Yeah. Well, let's flick chart the illusionist before let's we do start it. Away. All right, the illusionist or the Sandlot?
1: Hmm, I'm going to say the Sandlot.
0: I am too. Hercules und Wonderkid. <laughs> <laughs> i'll just never get over that the illusionist or clute
1: um interesting gonna, choice
0: i am gonna go with the illusionist i think it's uh yeah clute is a dark film and uh it's a it's a a a more dated film i think and i yeah. think i would enjoy watching the illusionist more even with its thorns yeah yeah i agree the illusionist or the dark knight rises
1: I'm totally going to the Illusionist. <laughs> the illusionist <on> <laughs> <one>. <laughs> totally. I'm going to say the Illusionist only because I'm so tired of arguing with you about that. <laughs> this will be our final reckoning. You <laughs> <laughs> do that really well. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the Illusionist or 28 Days Later? 28 Days Later. Totally. All right, number 51.
1: And where did Prestige come up on our list? That was like 38. 22 oh, somewhere in there it wasn't me, it better than that
0: you're gonna make me dig hold on hold on uh number 14 actually.
1: oh yeah i know we like that a lot it was
0: up toward, <laughs> yeah we did like that one quite a bit
1: we're uh, cruising up to the golden 100 yes we are every we it. week
0: and it's sooner okay. than we think
1: awesome hey uh good chat absolutely um the
0: last thing i have to say is get her done, get her done. We covered a lot of great movies that started as books or plays in Season 2, like Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes and The African Queen from our series about legendary
1: cinematographer Jack Cardiff. The Bourne Identity, Supremacy, Ultimatum, and Legacy. Jaws, Big Fish, The Thing, Bullet, Drive. The Maltese Falcon, Treasure of the Sierra
0: Madre, Moneyball. Ah, Moneyball. The Prestige, The Town, The Killing.
1: So many great movies from so many great sources.
0: Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they are so annoying and have no connection to our content.
1: Plus, they just jam those things wherever they see fit.
0: We listened when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener.
1: Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it. And I have read hundreds of books through it.